The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now look with me in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Having described the oppression of God's people in the opening chapters, you see the contrastive, the word but. But, but in light of all that has happened because of sin, in the life of my people and in the life of Israel, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In other words, all this oppression has come right through the two northern tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun in the land. But there's coming a time. In latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. This Advent season, I again want to thank the number of the pastoral staff and uh, elders who encouraged me to go to this text um, for the Advent season. I hope it's been a blessing for you in the providence of God. I know it has been an extraordinary blessing in my life in the study and preparation to preach it uh, for you and to the glory of God. Uh, grateful for his patience and helping me work through it and hopefully uh, his blessing to you as you work through it and as you begin to understand it. We focused upon this Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 
And I think it's safe to say, and uh, perhaps, uh, and perhaps uh, absolutely accurate to say, that this, of all the 60-plus prophecies in the Old Testament, of the advent of Christ and his redeeming work and the consummation of that work, of all of those prophecies, this perhaps is the most prominent. It is the most pervasive. It is the most penetrating of all the prophecies. It is referenced in the New Testament. It is quoted in the New Testament. And you can see the tentacles of its impact and influence and insight running throughout the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, this prophecy of Christ, the Messiah King, who is going to come, this King and his kingdom. Here is this statement of the kingdom and the king, what he will do, how he will do it, who is this king and what he does. He's made it abundantly clear. This is the king who will come to emancipate his people. He is coming to emancipate his people from sin, not just sin, but the consequences of sin. He will, he will, he will emancipate them. He will liberate them from sin's darkness, sin's death, sin's despair, and sin's dominion. So it no longer rules over his people. Now will they, until he comes in the second advent, have to deal with remaining sins and besetting sins? Yes, but they no longer live They no longer live under the dominion of sin. They no longer live in sin, even though we still have sin living in us until he comes again. This one, this king who comes to liberate us, has done so by defeating his, has done so by liberating us from our sin and defeating his enemies to emancipate us. From sin's darkness, sin's despair, sin's dominion, and sin's, um, sin's, uh, ever present discouragement and dissipation. That's what he has done. That's what he came to do. That's what he promised to do. This is the kingdom blessing. He will break the rod of sin's dominion. He will liberate us from its bondage. He will set us free with his glorious redeeming work. This is the king that is promised to us. How will he do it? Well, he will defeat all of his enemies. He will defeat Satan. He will defeat the grave. He will defeat death. He will defeat hell. He will defeat all, even as he ransoms us from the wrath of God because of our sin and defeats the enemies of God for our liberation. Now, who is this king? Well, you just sung. Infant lowly. Infant holy. Holy. That word not only means pure and righteous, it means unique, one of a kind, something that is sanctified as distinct, incomparable. This is the king who comes.
How will he do it? How will he accomplish it? Through his son. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God's plan is to become one of us. Son of God, son of man. In order to emancipate us by taking the place of us. Removing our sins from us upon himself. And then giving us his righteousness that is pure. That's what he has come to do. That's what he is purposed to do. That's what was promised that he would do. Well, it's one thing to make a promise. It's another thing to keep a promise. Would this king be able to keep the promises of his kingdom? Would he be able to accomplish that? Well, the assurance comes, the assurance comes by declaring his name. Now, did you see how it, the text said it? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name, singular, shall be called, and then comes four names. Well, what is it? Is it four names or one name? No, it's one name with four highlighted titles. Four highlighted royal throne names. Four highlighted. Now, as I said last week, I'm very indebted to Joel Beakey, one of my friends who just published his systematic theology, and uh, he's done the work, and I'm going to take his word for it, that there are actually 280 names, a number I'll never forget, because I have to ride Highway 280 every single day, God's gift of sanctification to me. So I had to do it. By the way, it was interesting this week, one of my children will remain nameless. One of my children called me and said, Dad. Can you give me those 280 names and titles? I said, well, I can start, but I don't think I can get them all to you. Well, Dad, I need them. Why? You won't believe Highway 280 today. I need to meditate on every single one of them so that I can, uh, well, I can understand that. And I appreciate the ingenuity. But Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit of God, pulls four of them together. These are regal Names. These are throne names. This is what kings have. They'll read all the names and they introduce the king. Uh, if it's the king of England, now, of course, all my entire lifetime, the queen of England, the names will, uh, the names are 40, 40 uh, royal name and titles that are given. So 40 names that are there, 40 titles that are there, but for very specific reason, Isaiah is led by the Spirit to select these four. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now, again, doesn't mean therapist. Counselor was a position in the court. Daniel occupied it for five dynasties and two empires. Nehemiah uh, Nehemiah occupied it under Artaxerxes. Joseph occupied this position for Pharaoh. 
Here is the counselor. Kings had counselors. There were three things about the counselor. He had to be wise. He had to be strategic. That is, know how to deal with political, economic, and military issues. And he had to be uh, loyal, trustworthy. And who is Jesus? Jesus is a king that doesn't need a counselor. He is his own counselor. And he is incomparable. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? He is the wonderful counselor. He not only knows what needs to be done to set his people free from their sins and accomplish the mission the Father has given him to save his people from all of their sins for all of eternity. He not only knows what needs to be done, he knows how it needs to be done. How is it to be done? Not by a coalition. Not by accommodation. Not by association. But by the incarnation. A child will be born to you. The son of man in his humanity. The son will be given to you. The son of God in all of his glory. And he is the wonderful counselor. Well, it's one thing to have the strategy. But can he fulfill the strategy? It's one thing to put in a football, in a football locker room, it's one thing to put a brilliant game plan on the blackboard with the X's and O's. But can you deliver it? There's the plan. There's the strategy. Wisdom personified, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And we behold his glory, the glory of the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, wisdom, incomparable counselor. But he's also the mighty God. What is impossible with man is secured by him. This is the Almighty. This is El Shaddai who has come. And when that text tells you the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, it's not simply that Jesus is passionate to do the will of the Father to save us. It is also he is able. He not only has the he not only has the wisdom. He not only in, in his passion. He has the power to accomplish his passion. Therefore, he is the mighty God to save us. I'm going to try to say some more about this next Lord's Day when we look at the Prince of Peace. But I would just simply say to you, you know, when we sing. The songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We sing about the angels in the fields of Bethlehem. And it says that the angel appeared. And with the angel was a what? Does anybody know? A multitude. A better translation. King James on this one. A host. Now don't go past that language. That just means a lot. 
host was the word in the Old Testament for army. You're going to see a baby in the manger. And the host of the angelic who is engaged in the ever-present spiritual cosmic war. You're going to look and see in that manger the captain of the Lord of hosts. The captain of the Lord of hosts who has come to do battle to save a people who need to be saved but don't want to be saved. And he will defeat all of those enemies in the cosmos to save them from their sins. Well, what will he do next? What will that mean, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God? It means everlasting Father. Now, maybe you aren't where I am. I am a very simple person. So I just have preached on a child is born and what? A son is given. And now the names are given of that son. And what is the name? Well, wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I had a father and there was no mistake I wasn't him. I was his son, and son was different than father. And until I leave and cleave and God gives me a family, that's what I was in that family, son. I wasn't father. I don't ever remember my daddy getting up on Sunday morning saying, okay, son, where do you think we ought to go to church today? I don't remember that. I don't ever remember my dad ever, um, I don't, I do not remember him doing any of those things. I was a son and I was to be taught by my father. He, fathers teach your children as you rise up and walk by the wayside. So I knew what I was. I was a son. He was a father. But here we've got this son that's given for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who is that son? He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's the everlasting father. What is he a son or a father? Well, What's the key? Well, there have been two suggestions to solve our dilemma for us. Y'all kind of feeling the dilemma at all? Have you ever felt it when you've sung it? I know you love singing it. We do it every Christmas. We'll, we'll do it tonight. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. But have you ever wondered, why am I calling the son father? Everlasting father. Why am I doing that? Well, there have been two suggestions that many have given. Uh, one, uh, is that he is called the everlasting father because of the unity of the persons of the Trinity. Because of the unity. Did not Jesus say, when you've seen me, you have what? Seen the father. That's what it is. It's the unity of the Trinity. And let me just tell you, for a number of years, I parked there. <laughs> That's where I did it. I parked right there, kind of enhanced by the second suggestion. 
One suggestion is you call him the everlasting father because of the unity of the Trinity in the essence of the persons. But the second answer, the second suggestion is, well, because of the identity of the Trinity with the fact that they all three persons have the same attributes. All three have the same. You don't have one with more. It's not the father has more attributes than the son and the son more than the spirit. There is an equality of God in terms of the attributes of God. So therefore, since they have identical, identical attributes, then that's why you can say so unity and identity. Those are the two answers that are given. And those answers are not wrong in and of themselves. But I do believe They miss the point of the text. I don't think that's the answer of this, of why it's used in this text. The answer comes in the fact that what we have in front of us are four royal throne names to help us understand the name of Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. And before that name, every knee shall what? Before that name, every knee shall what? Bow. When you call upon the Lord in the name of the Jesus, in the name of Jesus, you what? Will be saved. Right? So here is Jesus. The name whereby we must be saved, the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. And and Isaiah says there may be 280, but there's four throne names to this king, four king titles. I want you to know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and that's simply what I want you to understand. This is a throne name, not a familial name. This is a throne name that borrows from a family name and responsibility. It's not unusual. You see it all the time. There are some very negative, there are some negative examples of this. We fought a world war against a despotic empire, a fascist empire that was moved under the direction and control of a dictator, and that dictator took all of the names of the previous kings of that nation and applied them to himself, but the one he made the church say and the one he made the citizens say was Fuhrer, which is Father. You're dependent on me. I'll take care of you. Whenever I look at the abdication of faithfulness of the confessional church in Germany in those years, I go back to a particular meeting where they met with Hitler. And he said, don't worry. I'll take care of you. I'll be your Fuhrer. And that's where they put their trust in that king. But you also see it in other ways, and it's used more or less beneficially. It's part of the titles of the kings and queens of England. Do you know what you call 
if you get the chance to meet with and talk with Queen Elizabeth by her permission and by custom and manner, you may call her what? Mum. That's short. In England, that's the same thing that I grew up saying, Mommy. And uh, if, there was a, if there was a male king, you could call him Father. That was a title. That's what was it. In our own country, and we don't have kings, but we did have a pretty good president who refused to be King George, and that was George Washington. And what do we give him the title of? What, do we, what is a, a title of respect that was given? Father of the country. That's what this is. It is a royal throne name that this king, with his strategy, to save his people as the incomparable counselor, the wonderful counselor, and as a mighty God, when he, now watch, when he wins the victory that we are dependent upon, he will not use it for tyranny, but he will use it as a good father. Now, what does a father do? A father does three things biblically. May I stop here? Spoiler alert or advertisement, whichever one you want to call it. I'm going to be doing a series on fatherhood and uh, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, including what it means to be a godly man as a husband, godly man as a father, godly woman as a mother, godly woman as a wife. We're going to take the time to do that. That's where we're headed. That's what we're going to do uh, after the first of the year on Sunday nights. So I want to get there. But here, just for a moment, what you know about a father is a father is called to do three things. Number one, to provide. If any man does not provide for his own, he is what? Worse than an infidel. He is to provide and he is to protect. He is to provide, he is to protect, and he is to lead sacrificially with a servant's heart. He is to lead or shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep Those are the three things that a father does. This king, who is incomparable in his wisdom, mighty in power to save, does not exploit his people, does not tyrannize his people. This one who came in the advent, ascended, and now in glory gives gifts to his people. This one who led captive a host of captives now gives gifts by his grace to his people. It is just absolutely incomparable. This king is no tyrant. This king provides. This king protects. This king directs, guides leads as a shepherd. I tried to think back for some illustration. I couldn't get just out. I just did it out of personal experience. Maybe I can just give you two brief illustrations of this personally out of my life. When I was growing up and I mentioned my father and my mother, I had three sisters and we were growing up and 
my, my dad, as I've said, was in minor league baseball, and it just is not a very profitable enterprise. So, you know, we would have been classified as um, not um, uh, totally dependent poor, but we would have been on the lower side. And um, I can remember finding a dollar bill, and my mother found a way for us to eat out that night. It's called McDonald's. In 1960, you could get four hamburgers for 60 cents. And you could get two french fries for 20 cents and two drinks so that we could all split it in the back seat after we had done that. It's amazing what you could do when you come to those things. But that meant um, my dad many times was always trying to work a deal for a car. And he had worked a deal at an auction for a car. And its shakedown cruise was one Christmas when we were headed, when we were headed to visit relatives uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. And we, we always traveled at night so everybody packed up and we were in the back seat asleep and we're traveling there's one thing that dad had not checked and that is in this older car that he had bought at the auction he did not check the fuel gauge and it just didn't work it said full but actually it was empty so in the now remember this is in the I'm just a little kid now this is back in the late 50s and that means there was no Interstates, just two-lane roads, middle of nowhere, forget lights, pitch black dark going into the low country of Charleston, uh, toward Charleston, South Carolina. We ran out of gas, side of the road, one o'clock in the morning. There were hardly any cars, and those that came out, my dad is standing out beside the car waving. And he's about six foot one and rather big guy. And when they saw him, I wished I could tell you everyone screeched to a halt. Actually, they put the pedal to the metal and went right by him. And so I leaned out the window. I'll never forget this. One of my not very smart moments in my life. I have a number of them. I said, Dad. Maybe if I stand out there with you, they'll be more likely to stop. And he said, no, son, we can't do it. And then he got, and he stopped. And he said, hey, that's not a bad idea. He said, come on out here. So I got out there, and I remember standing beside him, and he took his coat, and he put it around me. It was cold. We were, it was Christmas. And he put his coat around me. And when he put his coat around me, um, I felt a little bit better, but... I could hear every noise of every animal in the state of South Carolina. I could see all of that. And in my mind, I'm wondering, who will stop? It's either going to be something close to an angel or somebody that is an axe murderer. It's going to be one of those two, I'm pretty sure. But we sat there. And we stood there. And yes, someone stopped. And yes, they were very gracious. And yes, we went on. Secondly, it wasn't long after that. Uh, I mean, it was it was uh, long after that that we actually moved to, to Charleston. And I was in the second grade. And we lived about a mile and a half from the 
from the school that I was to go to in the second grade. So daddy and mother one, uh, one Sunday afternoon walked me to show me how to get to it. It was at Park Circle. So you had to go around Circle and you had to know which road to go down to get to the school. You get to the circle, go around the circle, and that's the road you go down. So that's what we did. And I went down this, and, and we went down the road and they showed me, now you can do this, can't you son? Yes, daddy, I can do that. Yes, daddy, I can do that. So the first day of school came and I went. Now what you don't know, if you've never been to North Charleston, is they have a paper mill, they have a marsh, and they have fog every single morning for the, the entire fall season. And so I got up that morning and this was a terrible morning with the, with the paper mill belching out the smoke. The fog had come in, it had rolled in. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And I went down there, I started around the circle. I couldn't figure out which one to go, so I went around the circle again. I still remember this like it was yesterday. I went around the circle a second time and then finally said, well, I believe that's it. But unfortunately, that wasn't it. And then I get lost in North Charleston. And I'm convinced I'm lost. (laughs) And there's no hope. In fact, I was pretty well convinced I was about to fall off the edge of the world. And I looked up and there was the 54 Chevy with my dad opening the door and said, son, are you lost? <laughs> I said, yes, Dad. And he said, well, get in. I'll take you. Let's go. And so he rescued me. What did he do? He provided. He protected. He guided. He shepherded. Now, earthly fathers do that to varying degrees of effectiveness, success, And with righteousness. But Jesus. Is your kingly father. And he. Knows what to provide for you. To save you from your sins. It's himself. At the cross. He. Knows. What to do to take the guilt of sin away. It's himself at the cross. He knows what to do to break the dominion of sin. It is him at the cross who binds the strong man. Who defeats the domain of darkness. And who takes the keys of the kingdom to set you free in Christ. And he has not come to tyrannize, but to save. He has not come in exploitation, but in salvation, in emancipation. For your liberation from sin and all of our enemies. And when he comes again, those that he has defeated, he will destroy. And just as the text says, he'll roll up war and throw it into the fire. The weapons of the world and throw them into the fire. Here is the one who went into the fire 
for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here is the one who took the torments of hell on the cross for you. And then will be with you. The everlasting father. His kingdom knows no end. His kingdom is forever. And you are here. All empires. All nations. They have their shelf life. This one. This kingdom. And this king. And his zeal. To save his people. Is forever. And ever. And the increase of this government. Shall know no end. And. This government upon his shoulders, his shoulders will sustain it, for he is the mighty God and he is the everlasting father as he redeems us from our sins. So here's your takeaway, then we'll close. Jesus Christ saves us from our sins, not by accommodations, not by negotiations, Not by coalitions. When Jesus came into the world, the Pharisees, they had already created a deal with Rome. The Zealots, well, they were looking to the ways of the world to to accomplish uh, emancipation. The Herodians, they had already signed peace treaties. Here is a Savior who says to us, his people, I will save you, not by accommodations of sin and, the, and, and my enemies, not by negotiations, not by coalition, but by his incarnation. And his incarnation is a straight line to his crucifixion. And from the crucifixion will come the resurrection and then the ascension. And even now he intercedes for you. That's what he has come to do. This Savior who has come to save you, though by sin oppressed, look to him for rest. Our God is able to deliver you. He is able to deliver you. He is able to deliver you. Though by sin we would be oppressed, look to him for rest. This son who came to be among us, one of us, to take our place for us. This is the one who goes to the cross to save us. This is the one who is resurrected and he was delivered up because of our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. He has ascended and why do you stand there looking? This same Jesus who has ascended, who now intercedes for you, will come again in a consummation. This, with this This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this is the everlasting father who saves us, who secures us, who seals us, who sanctifies us. And he is the one who came to seek us. You remember the prodigal coming home to the father. Don't forget the father Coming to the prodigal. This is the Savior who came to us to save us. I look back and I remember all of the anxieties of those two illustrations I gave you. I was walking in darkness. 
I was overcome by the darkest of darkness around me. I didn't know what was going to happen next. But I still remember, even though all of those fears were ready to take hold of me, I was able as a child to sense my safety. Because my father was there. I know he'll provide. I know he'll protect me. I know he'll guide me. What we have is a king who in his incarnation committed to his humiliation. In his humiliation, he was humbled to be found as one of us. And then he was humbled to the point of death for us. And he will save us. He will secure us. He will seal us. He will sanctify us. And even now, he is declaring to you, come to me. I don't know where you are today. I have no idea where you are spiritually. But I do know this is a large group. And what I do know is there's got to be some here who haven't come to him. Today, you are in the midst of an Advent season that we celebrate that God's Son, our King, has come to us to save us. And that's why we sing joy to the world. But this day, you need to come to him. Right now, run to him. Flee to him. Right now, come to him whose great power is there to emancipate you and liberate you from sin, even as he has defeated his enemies. Humble yourself. Don't negotiate Humble yourself and come and put your trust in him and he will exalt you at the right time. Come to him and if God be for us, who can be against us? Come to him and who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who has justified you. Come to him. He is your redeemer. Folks, I know there's a lot out there that will get you excited in the exhilaration of what the world offers for a moment. But actually, what you just bit into is nothing but vanity. But in Christ, there is everlasting joy. You have a king who provides, who protects, and who will guide you. So fix your eyes on Jesus and come to him who came for you. Run to him. He has come to save you. Father, thank you for the moments we can be together in your word. 
Thank you, O God, for the glory and majesty of our Savior Jesus Christ, our King, a King who needs no counselor, for He's a wonderful counselor, incomparable, a King who needs no coalitions, He's the mighty God, but a King who is our everlasting Father, everlasting. His kingdom is everlasting. For our King is everlasting. And He loves His people. He loves to save us. He loves to secure us. He loves to seal us by His blood and with His Spirit. He loves to sanctify us. And he loves us so much, he seeks us. So, O Lord, we come to you and praise your holy name. Because you are our redeemer, our provider, our protector. In you is our salvation. In you is our refuge. Guide us, O great Savior. We are yours. And praise your name, you are ours. And you are all we need. May your preeminence be declared and the joy of our salvation fill our soul. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.